Welcome to the Deep Dive, Emerald City Hockey's Seattle Kraken podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to a special October 31st Halloween episode of the Deep Dive. Uh, Sorry we're not in any spooky costumes or anything, we're actually recording this a day beforehand just to try to make all the scheduling work, Uh, as I mentioned on Post Game Live last night after that incredible Penguins win. But going to get to all the games in just a second, going to get to breaking down kind of advanced stats-wise where the Kraken are at and everything, and then definitely going to have a conversation about Shane Wright given kind of the new news stories and events that have come out in the last couple days. So definitely going to get to all of that here in just a second on the Deep Dive presented by Queen Anne Beer Hall. Uh, but like I said, we're going to start with breaking down this past week of Kraken hockey, RJ. And this is the question I have for you. Was this the best week of Kraken hockey that we've had yet this season? You know what? Thinking through the different weeks, if you separate it by by Mondays like we do for this podcast, I think you got to say it is. Yeah, I mean, you get the 5-1 win over Buffalo. Yes, you lose to Vancouver. That's rough. But then you get that dominant performance against Pittsburgh uh, last night for us back on Saturday night for when everybody's listening to this. And I, I was just trying to think, like, I can't think of another stretch where the team has played so well, been so consistent. Yeah, I can't either. And and especially, you know, with the one loss in there, not having a whole lot of you know, really bad things to say about it. Just kind of, it was a run of the mill loss. Um, so I, I do think it was a good week for the Kraken. And at the time of this recording, it, it seems like things are looking up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, can't wait to get to, to that Penguins game and talk about that all over again, because I'm still just so jazzed up about it. But we got to start back with uh, that game against the Sabres. Kraken win 5-1, absolutely shellac the Sabres, who, you know, they were they were rolling like this was this Buffalo Sabres team that was absolutely rolling. They still only uh, or at the time. I think this is at the time they were four and two uh, is what it says here mm-hmm. on the on the NHL website. But you limit the Sabres to 16 shots on goal. Uh, the Sabres go 0 for 4 on the power play. So the PK picks up some much needed wins there. I'm sure we'll talk about that as this goes on. Um, but it was just it was just an absolutely solid game all the way around to get depth scoring. Everybody's getting involved two two for three on the power play. It was incredible. It was uh, just a great 60 minute all around effort from the Kraken in that one. And I mean, you can you can argue the Sabres were a little bit tired at the end of a long road trip. Uh, and but that's what you're supposed to do to tired teams and and the Kraken just were on top of them uh, the whole game. And you really never got the sense Buffalo was going to get back into it. No, and what's impressive about this one was it never they were never letting Buffalo do what Buffalo wanted to do. Buffalo was never getting sustained zone time. They were struggling with that the the entire time. They couldn't get anything going offensively. They couldn't get to their game. And that's what's impressive to me because yes, you're taking advantage of a team on the second half of a long road trip. That's certainly beneficial for you, but you're, you know, you're just outplaying another team and that's never a bad thing. It's always something good to see. And um, I, I just think they, they all got it going. We get first goals of the season for Jamie Alexiak and Morgan geeky and Daniel Sprong. So you get all these guys, you know, get Sprong and geeky into the lineup, get them goals. Jamie Alexiak getting a goal. We'll, we'll talk about him getting scoring a little bit later again. Um, but it was just really, really nice to see those guys all get on the board. And, and it shows the embarrassment of riches the Kraken have, because I think at the end of this week, we're up to 17 players with a goal now. Uh, yeah, I believe so. It was 16 after that game. Do we have a 17th now? Yeah, because Eberly got his first last night. That's right. Yep. 17 play. Amazing that Eberly was the 17th. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, but up to 17 players with a goal. I believe that's still number one in the NHL. I, I haven't checked after that one game, but 16 was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, shows the embarrassment of Riches at forward. And man, the fourth line in that game, uh, responsible for three of the Kraken goals. Uh, they were just on fire. They, they really hit uh, hit something there with that Tanev, Geeky, and Sprong line. Exactly. It looks really, really unstoppable. I guess the only thing you could say about it that that is a struggle, and this has been surprising, was Morgan Geeky struggling so much in the face-off dot because that was the real you know negative takeaway from this game was Buffalo did win sixty-seven percent of the draws. 
that's a lot, especially for a game you're dominating in every other facet of. Um, and and Morgan Geeky definitely contributing to that with the 11%. Maddie Beneers not much better at 29%. Wenberg at 23%. So face off definitely a struggle, not just in this game, but really all week. We've kind of tried to to talk about it. I I just I don't know. Short of short of doing what kind of Ty suggested, right? If he was Haxtall for a day, where you're just spending an entire day doing faceoffs. I don't know how this team really gets better at it. And they work on it so much in practice. I think I might have mentioned this either mm-hmm. during one of the post games or, or last deep dive, but every single practice afterward, they all the centers come together and work on faceoffs for a long time. So uh, if reps aren't the answer, I don't know what is. Yeah. Now in the Penguins game, we did see them make a third period adjustment and win, I, I believe, six straight draws there. Um, so hopefully that's the, the you know a sign of good things to come. But when it comes to this Buffalo game, I don't know that too much really needs to be said about it. It was just a dominant performance. Yeah, I think that just about sums it up. All right. So let's move on to the Vancouver game because that one was tough. Uh, you lose 5-4 to Vancouver, your Vancouver's first win of the season. The, they were 0-5-2 going into that game. Um, now 0-4, I believe, all-time against Vancouver. So, you know, a regional rival that's never fun to deal with. You, you certainly want to get that goal in there. Um, but there was there were still bright spots for the Kraken. You outshoot them 36-19. to That's another positive. You're kind of winning that, that possession battle there. Um, you get another power play goal. Faceoff's a little bit better, still not great. Uh, but at the end of the day, it just came down to you weren't able to limit mistakes and you weren't able to kill off penalties. Yeah, I mean, that really is what it came down to, limiting the mistakes. And then, of course, the, the PK, a real issue there, uh, started the game as, I believe, the sixth worst in the NHL, finished the game uh, very close to the worst. Um, I kind of kept track of that stat as it was going because the Canucks actually had the worst PK. They'd killed one more penalty off than uh, than Kraken would have moved to the worst. Uh, but yeah, it just felt like one of those games where if the Kraken were doing the right things and playing the way that we know they're capable of, they win that game. But it, they just could never get st- get things into shape and and find their game. There are a bunch of opportunities to do so, uh, but they just kind of let it keep slipping away from them. Uh, you know, the defensive miscues kind of reared their ugly head again. Uh, Thatcher Demko had some clutch saves when it mattered, uh, mm-hmm. but still, I you know, he, he was beatable. He was definitely beatable in that game. Uh, they just need to tighten up defensively. Yeah, yeah, Thatcher Demko looked very, very leaky early on there. Those those first two goals, uh, one from Jamie Alexiak getting his second of the season, and then McCann just, you know, I guess that's the other thing we should talk about is McCann's goal streak kind of just going through. It was, it was what, four or five games, I, I believe? Four games, yeah. Four games, yeah, absolutely incredible. Good to see he's back and, and getting going again and, and getting that depth scoring from that third line because really that was the one line for the Kraken this season that – hadn't been scoring too much but ever since ever since he got the full uh fishbowl removed he's just been on fire Jared McCann love to see it yep um but yeah de- you know defensively there was issues uh the big talk after that was you know Vancouver's this winless team coming into this game you get into two fights early on that puts you down two defensemen and does that help you know kind of get Vancouver going they get they get an early goal from uh Ilya Mikheyev I mean, we talked about it a lot on post game, but for people who couldn't make that, just kind of your thoughts quickly about how that situation developed and whether or not the Kraken should have found themselves where they found themselves. Yeah, I think it really played into the Canucks' hands. Uh, they kind of had a message they wanted to send, and when you're a team coming in off that kind of slump, you're you're looking to kind of get the game distracted from something besides just the hockey in front of you. Um, we talked about the Adam Larson fight, the first one. He, you know, he lays a really big hit, uh, and then Tanner Pearson kind of goes after him and tries to fight him. And I think you kind of won me over on that argument that he kind of needs to answer the bell there. Um, and so he does. But then you have JT Miller challenging Carson Soucy to a fight, and still I can't tell what caused that. Uh, and it's one where you have to know, be situationally aware, know that there's already a defenseman in the box, know what the Canucks are trying to do in this game, and just turn down that fight. Yes, you have the opportunity to take JT Miller off the ice for five minutes, um, but you've got to know where those trade-offs lie and that that maybe you can't afford another fight there. 
And then uh, it's a decision that Vince Dunn made shortly afterward when the Kraken had two defensemen in the box already. Uh, and a Canucks player was coming in trying to challenge Vince Dunn and uh, would have put the Kraken down half of their defensemen, uh, you know, for almost five minutes. And Dunn said, you know, thanks, but no thanks and skated away. Uh, so I just think a little bit better awareness there. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, the the risk you run if Adam Larson doesn't fight Tanner Pearson after laying out the big hit is that things get... Um, scrappy to say it in the nicest way possible uh you just don't want vancouver who are you know winless they're already upset and frustrated and now they feel like you're not you know doing you're not following the code of the nhl right where uh if you're challenged after laying somebody out like that you gotta kind of step up and, and take that fight so i i, I, I yeah I, I have no problems with adam larson taking the fight there because i think that saves things from getting worse later um but that the Susie decision, that one was a rough one for sure. Um, on the PK, the, the PK has definitely struggled throughout the year. We talked about it. They, you know, they were able to kill off four Buffalo power plays in that first game, able to take care of business against the Penguins. Canucks go two for two, and that becomes the difference in this one. And really, even in the Buffalo, well, the Buffalo game looked pretty good from the PK, but in the Penguins game, I never felt like the PK was really that strong. Uh, I, I don't entirely know what the Kraken can do to fix it other than at times it seems like it's just kind of it's different guys out there like they're trying different looks. Um, I don't know if it's a matter of just trying to get guys out there and and, and build that chemistry as a unit or uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? I think the poor results on the PK so far have kind of led to moments of indecision and, and lack of confidence. And I think those manifest themselves in like the failure to get a clear. I think in that Canucks mm -hmm. game, Carson Kuhlman just has to clear that puck out of the zone. He had a good opportunity to do it. And when you're on the PK, you can send it down as hard as you want. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about nicing or, or flipping the puck out, but you get too cute and uh, it comes back the other way. So I, that's kind of my idea is that, you know, when you're not doing well, you can be a little hesitant and you can kind of fail to make those simple plays you need to make or getting right in front of a guy net front. I know they've had problems with that at even strength as well. Um, but when you're confident, uh, you kind of get in those right lanes. You're more decisive uh, when you have the puck and you have an opportunity to clear. Um the PK, it just feels very momentum based. And we saw this last season too, when they kind of made that decision to get more aggressive and think less and, and attack more. Uh, and it worked out for them. I think they just need a couple games, like the Pittsburgh game, even though it didn't, it didn't look very good by the eye test, yeah. need a couple games where they just don't allow uh, power play goals. And I think that'll help. Exactly. Cause, and I think confidence is a good thing to talk about there. I was going to say it's, it's looked maybe a little more conservative than it used to. And I think that that comes from the lack of confidence. They're, they're a little worried about taking chances. Uh, I, you know, I did that, that PK breakdown after the Buffalo game uh, and I break it down. And when I talk about, you know, as other teams are transitioning from their own defensive zone through the neutral zone into the Kraken zone, the Kraken had been running a one, one, two, and and they were really hyper aggressive with it. That's what they had settled on last season. We saw that to open things up this year from them. And then really, as as you look at the Buffalo game, Pittsburgh, uh, uh, Pittsburgh game and, and really this Vancouver game in the middle here, they were not doing the one one two anymore. It's a one three. They're stacking three guys at their own blue line who aren't challenging at their blue line, by the way. They're just kind of hanging back there and then all retreating together as like this this line but they're just seeding ground the entire way and i don't i don't know what that's about i don't know how that's supposed to service you you're you're basically allowing the other team to to get established in the zone you're giving them ice you're not challenging them uh you don't have that extra guy up through the neutral zone harassing somebody as they're trying to receive a pass cleanly from a defenseman so i think a lot of their problems stem from before the puck is even in their zone they're just not being nearly as aggressive or nearly as confident as you mentioned um is there i'm, I'm trying to think of other things to talk about from this vancouver game i mean it was a rough rough night for martin jones it was kind of back to earlier in the season where it felt like started off kind of strong. And then as things get going, just the confidence there kind of erodes, you know? 
Yeah, it, it was it was one of those games for him. And I think, you know, his D didn't help him out in other moments. But yeah, yes. there, there are certain times where you'd like to have a save. And Dave Haxtell did mention that after the game. Uh, just getting one save here or there uh, could make a big difference. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of been the story at various points, you know, throughout different Kraken goalies, you know, for certain say, games like this. <laughs> that's, that's just the history of the Seattle Kraken, if we had to sum it up nice and clean yep. like that. Um, yeah. And, and then otherwise, like you said, tighten things up, just got to limit turnovers, got to limit, uh, just poor decision-making, uh, especially defensively, just rough stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I did walk away from this Vancouver game feeling like, you know what, it was just like kind of a back and forth hockey game and you just came out on the wrong side of it. It wasn't like, oh, here's this winless team and they just outclassed us completely. You know what I mean? Yeah, it didn't feel like that Arizona game last year, especially because the Kraken had, you know, this lately going. They they blew that game, absolutely yeah. blew that game against Arizona. It didn't feel like that. No, it, not at all. And then going into the last game that we'll talk about, break down the Pittsburgh game, where it was just a full 60 minute effort from the Kraken. And really outside of one mistake from Jamie Alexiak that directly leads to that Penguins goal from Jake Gensel, the Kraken were just solid top to bottom. Like every single player, all four forward lines, all three D pairs, goaltending from Martin Jones. I think everybody has talked about it afterwards. That might have been the best goaltending performance a Seattle Kraken goaltender has ever put together. Agreed. I, I think it very well might have been. Uh, we, we saw the uh, Allison pointing out the, you know, he saved over three goals above expected in that game, uh, which is fantastic. And that certainly aligns with the eye test. Um, Martin Jones was excellent in that game. I mean, and of course, the, the day after, uh, you know, becoming a dad and having his, uh, you know, his first baby born a, a son, which is awesome. Uh, you know, congrats to Martin Jones. I, I think he was just kind of feeling it in that game um, and, and just robbing the Penguins on a, on a number of different occasions. But I think uh, beyond that, I, I think the skaters in front of him did a good job making things manageable for him. Again, not easy. He had to make some very difficult saves but manageable. So, you know, one's taking away opportunities where he had no chance. Uh, and I think that was huge for him. And if you just give him a chance there, uh, that's really big. Um, you know, not fueling the Penguins transition too. That was another thing that Dave Haxtell emphasized before the game and the Kraken were able to, you know, execute on that game plan basically, uh, which was really good to see. Yeah. I, I feel like so many of the you know, miscues, misplays, mistakes, whatever you want to call it that we've seen from the Kraken defense that, that you and I have talked about on, you know, just about every single post game live, it feels like this season. None of that was there today. You weren't seeing guys get behind them, right? There was no, there was never really a penguin between a Kraken defender and Martin Jones. So you're limiting guys getting behind you and getting, getting those first looks at rebounds and things like that. That's a big one. Uh, you limit, you know, just the whole, uh, having both of your defensemen slide down beneath the goal line and leaving the front of the net exposed or having them both go out to be aggressive towards the side. And again, leaving, leaving your net exposed. You, they made sure to always have someone back who was always keeping the play in front of them. And, and it, it shows what a big difference that makes because it completely changes what the offense is able to do. The offense then has to do, you know, try to try to make more passes cross ice, you know what I mean? Through the zone, which are, you know, easier to pick off. They're a lot harder to make clean passes that way. It means as guys are trying to take, you know, kind of more quick one-timer-y attempts, not able to get all of it on it or not able to be super accurate with those attempts. So they're easier saves for a Martin Jones to make. So I, I really felt like the, the defense of this one stepped up big time as well as Martin Jones. Like, again, I don't want to, you know, diminish his performance of this one because he, he was just at a thousand percent. It was really, really cool to see, but it was, it was a total group effort there. Uh, Jordan Everly mentioned gets his first goal of the season, becomes the 17th member of the Kraken to do so. And also welcoming a new addition to his family. So big night for the new proud papas. Yeah. And it was a great, st sometimes the stories write themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, I, I heard that, you know, up in the press box during the game. Uh, it, it really felt like that uh, last night, you know, where you had uh, Eberly and Jones, the two guys that really stepped up. Uh, and also, I mean, we have to talk about this, the, the context yes. with the Eberly goal, uh, because it was a gutsy effort from the Kraken in that second period. You had two goals, not one, but two goals 
both disallowed by challenge. Uh, the first one offside at the entry, I actually caught that, you know, as it was happening, I was just like, oh, that's that's probably offside. Um, but the second one was on a on a high stick earlier in the play, not even part of the scoring sequence. And so you don't really think about it. You, OK, mm -hmm. you've scored after getting one disallowed. And then all of a sudden, wait, why is this being taken off the board? Uh, you know, it can be difficult to deal with. But every time the Kraken just came back harder uh, than they were before, it just kept pushing. And then I, I saw on the clock, it looked like three seconds later. It must have been more than that. Um, it's like, you know, but very yeah. soon afterward, I don't know what the official timing was, um, that they were able to to score and, and break through uh, Jordan Everly. How, how, I, how I don't it know. It doesn't. Goals, but... It doesn't say because it doesn't have like the the, the oh thing the disallowed goal yeah it doesn't okay yeah, yeah fair so, enough uh, so but I can't still see, right yeah. away I was still typing the uh, you know the second goal yeah. disallowed tweet uh, so I missed the goal live yeah. Uh, but was, yeah incredible response it was so fast that the 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 TV cameras were still talking about the disallowed goal they had a graphic and they were showing other things and then they cut back to play and. The play, you know, what becomes the scoring play has already started to develop. It was so fast. You know what I mean? Like face-off happens and they're just right back to it. And all credit in the world to that line of Jordan Eberle, Jaden Schwartz, and Matty Beniers for being able to take that moment where you're talking about, you know, what would have been a response goal to the Jake Ensel Penguins goal gets wiped out off the board. So now you've had your second goal wiped out. You've been scored on. You're, you're still down by one now. You're finding yourself easiest 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 situation in the world to just be like you know f this like god you know what i mean and let it get to you and and you you let yourself down a little bit but instead it's the penguins who look complacent and and who look completely unprepared to play when the whistle comes back and and play starts again you know, puck drop um and and credit to that line for attacking them as aggressively as they did because that play develops basically by going right down the middle like you're just shoving it down the penguins throats that you are coming after them in this situation and you are not going to be denied again and you get a fantastic play from Jaden Schwartz creates a good opportunity for Maddie Veneers to have one of the, you know, low key pass of the year uh, attempts over to Jordan Everly, who's able to just tap it home and and get that. Because I felt bad because Everly was the you know primary assist on the Donato goal, that the first goal that was originally disallowed that would have put the Kraken up by one. And I was like, oh my gosh, they took a point off the board for Everly. On, you know, right after his kid's born, I was like, oh, that's terrible. Uh, but then, you know, makes up for it in the biggest way possible. Universe took care of him. <laughs> yeah, no, what goal. goes around comes around. I, he dishes that great pass out, gets an assist uh, on the Donato goal, and then gets a great pass sent to him, uh, you know, on his goal. It just it just works out perfectly. Right. And then talking about tweets from Allison Lucan, um, I, I believe it was five. That's the fifth time this season the Kraken have scored a response goal within two minutes of the opposing team scoring, which again, the context around this one, having one waved off moments before, you know, couldn't have been more than 20 seconds probably beforehand yeah. uh, to come back out and, and make sure that you get that response goal in a game where you're playing a really good team. I know this team is this Penguins team struggled on this road trip. But it was still a good team. We saw how hard the Kraken had to work for this one. And it was just total team effort. Love to see it. Yeah. Um, and then also Morgan Geeky getting a second goal. We'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about that more once we get to the Shane Wright discussion a little bit later as well. But uh, how about the electric celebration for Morgan Geeky? Does anybody celebrate getting a goal better than Morgan Geeky? I don't think so. I, no, I mean, it, no one does it better, I think, on, on the Kraken. I mean... It, you know, you have some other guys that get pretty animated, but man, was he excited to score that goal. Uh, and following his whole story kind of through last season, everything, you understand why. Uh, he's really coming into his own and, and showing his value on this fourth line that has just looked amazing this week. Yeah, they've they've played super, super strong. So let's go ahead and, and let's talk about like the Kraken overall playing strong and, and playing well. And we'll get into just how well all of these lines are playing and everything. Um, I've pulled up Money Puck on my computer so we could go through things. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you have as well. Um, first thing I want to talk about, though, RJ, and we'll, we'll try to do this compliment sandwich again. We'll talk like overall team strengths, then maybe we can talk about some stuff that's struggling, and then we'll get to some more team strengths. But first thing I have pulled up, RJ, 
is uh, playoff percentages, playoff odds on Money Puck. Care to guess where the Seattle Kraken are right now, playoff-wise? Knowing that they're exactly 500 again, because that's just where this team loves to be. Right. All right. Well, let's see. Because I, I know I've looked at the Money Puck playoff percentages before, but I, I did not pull them up for this. Mm-hmm. Um, they they tend to be pretty optimistic about the Kraken's playoff odds. I'll go with 55%. Even if they're 500, I feel like for a 500 team, it should be less, but I'll go 55%. Oh, RJ, don't you know they're playing in the terrible Western Conference this year? Uh, 61% chance of making the playoffs, according to Money Puck, as a 500 team. I'm with you. That might be a little optimistic. That being said, seeing how well this team can play when they limit mistakes and stuff, which is, you know, the easiest thing to then, like, go out and do. Like, it's much easier than last year where it was just, like, I don't know, find somebody who can all of a sudden score 25 goals, right? Like, that's that's near impossible to just kind of create out of thin air. Um, but, you know, being more disciplined and just limiting mistakes, that's something you can actually work on as as a season goes goes on. So maybe they're just trying to get ahead of the game. Maybe maybe what we saw from that Penguins game is going to be more of the Kraken team moving forward, in which case I think 61% is very appropriate. Yeah, if they continue to, to roll together what we've seen, if they can actually win two games in a row, things like that, um, then then that'll be good. And looking at the standings, too, like they, they're keeping pace with some of these teams in the Pacific. Only the well, the two teams you doubted, Vegas and Calgary, oh, you'll get to that, you know, don't have to talk about that now. But only those two teams are really kind of head and shoulders above the rest right now. Everybody else is still trying to find their footing. Exactly. And that's where, what I think a big part of this is. Uh, another big part of it is. Seattle Kraken are doing really well uh, in the money puck, like, you know, model of things. Expected goals percentage, Seattle Kraken fourth in the league with a 56.95%. Uh, I got to think that that's probably what's weighing very heavily in in their playoff. Box. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, but I do think that it, it you know, we've, we've seen the shot um, advantages for the Kraken all year long. Right. They've they've certainly been leading the way when it comes to that. Um, you feel like outside of giving up some just totally blown defensive coverages, a lot of these games would, you know, a lot of their losses would be closer. Some of them would just be straight up wins for this team. Um, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that there's any funny business going on when Money Puck has them kind of fourth in the league when it comes to this expected goals percentage. Yeah, I agree. And you look at where this team is at offensively. Uh, and, and how much offense they're generating. I know expected goals percentage, you know, it factors in obviously how much you generate and how much you allow too. Right. Um, but I, I think this is a team that just can generate like copious amounts of offense at a time. And we're seeing it in how many goals they're generating too. Like not just expected goals, but they're putting a lot of goals on the board. Um, and I, I think that can factor in. And I think also the, the way these are calculated too, as far as expected goals, I, I tend to think, that it, they can kind of underestimate um, or, or undercount really grade A scoring chances, you know, where, yeah. where the Kraken will give up one where the eye test tells you that's a goal 90 to 95% of the time. It's a wide open net, pass across, goalie has no chance, and it'll look like, oh, you know, 35 to 40% chance of a goal. Yeah. And and maybe in the aggregate that is, that is true. I don't know. Maybe that gets screwed up, but, you know, like, you know, more than half the time. Um, but I do think it has a way of undercounting that. And it's the type of chance the Kraken on their bad games can allow a lot of. So I think that might factor in a bit too. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's, it's the defensive miscue plays where we're just letting guys sit wide open in front of the net. Or the one I I will always go back to was when Domi is just right behind Jamie Alexiak, able to collect a puck <laughs> and goaltenders already had to make a move. And, and, you know, Domi's able just to put that one home. I mean, how do you even calculate that? Because I can totally see how from that angle, most of the time that player is going to be just, you know, completely locked up by a defender. That situation isn't going to happen very often. Goaltenders probably not coming off the sequence of events. They were just happening. So I can see how a goal like that would, you know, expected goals wise be lower. Um, But then, you know, when you're watching it, you're just like, yeah, anybody playing in the NHL should be able to bury that chance and kind of take advantage of the situation that unfolded there. Um, And I'm looking at it right now. It shows 37% chance of scoring you know according to that when the eye test might tell you it's a little bit more exactly so i do think that the kraken are benefiting from that just to you know be be totally fair about everything 
But it, it doesn't take away from the fact that, again, eye test-wise, if you're going to go off of that, the Kraken are driving possession. You're seeing that Matty Beniers line. They limit chances like nobody's business. Matty Beniers is so good defensively um, at taking away things. That slot is basically unusable for, for teams, opposing teams, the, the slot in the Kraken zone, because Matty Beniers just has it on lockdown whenever he's out there. Um, and we're seeing that that line pushes and drives offense. They don't maybe generate as many chances as you'd want, but they're sure good at limiting chances and keeping the game away from the Kraken's own zone. Now, the Wenberg, Bjorkstrand... And um, uh, Burkowski. Burkowski, thank you. There you, go. you know, the one on my fantasy team, the one I should remember the most. Uh, that line has been generating chances like crazy. And we can we'll, we'll get into the line breakdown as the second half of the compliment sandwich. But, you know, that line's been generating chances. We talked about the fourth line. Almost every single game this season, I've felt like the Kraken's fourth line has outclassed the opposing team's fourth line and spent, you know, 85% of the time in the opposing team's zone. It's good to see that. And then just this week, I felt like Yanni Gord has kind of gotten back into the swing of things in that third line. I know McCann has obviously been going off. We talk about the four-game goal, uh, four goal streak. But I felt like we're finally starting to see that kind of driving of possession and sustained offensive chances from that third line getting them going this week, which makes this Kraken team so scary to play against. It does. And you have four lines that that I think all kind of make sense now and they all know their role. And I think they all have different roles. We talked about this, you know, with with kind of the Beneers line that, that knows it's a little bit more defensive, but they still bring some scoring punch. The Wenberg line that's, you know, offense, uh, the Gord line that takes the really tough assignments. And then the fourth line that's just a matchup nightmare for for any team that doesn't have crazy depth. And, and it just all works out really well. Exactly. It's it's. um it's just night and day from last season, RJ. I'm so happy. I'm so happy <laughs> about it. These the, the games are are infinitely uh, better, and you feel like the Kraken have a chance every time now. And that was something that we missed last season, especially as it kept going. That was kind of the theme of those post game lives afterwards. Was it just you know we we would talk about it, we'd dissect the loss, we'd we'd all you know help each other out, pick each other up, but at the same time, it, there was that acknowledgement of it just. At some point, you just felt like you knew what was going to happen, and then it happened. And I feel like this season, we don't have that. Like, you feel like the Kraken are in these games till the very end. They were in that Vancouver game until the final buzzer went. And that's all all I could have ever hoped for going through this past offseason. So really happy about that. Now to talk about um, the struggles, RJ. Because there have been struggles. We've been talking about the defensive struggles this whole time. Now it's time to kind of look at that from, from you know, an analytic standpoint. And um, kind of to no one's surprise, the Alexiak-Schultz pairing significantly worse than the Kraken's two other pairings. Um, they've looked kind of both of them have looked lost in the defensive zone for a little bit, a little while now. Uh Justin Schultz, I thought, started the season very strong, but a lot of that was his offensive play and kind of driving things there. Has cooled off in that regard pretty significantly as the season's gone on. And Alexiak's just had struggles kind of everywhere, uh, whether it's playing behind the net in you know net front um, or you know turnovers and and bad plays in in the offensive zone that lead to chances going the other way. So um, last night we finally saw. A change. We saw a shuffling of the defensive pairings, so it's a little early to read too much into Susie Schultz and Borgen Alexiak, but I, I still think that that was something that needed to happen. And and all credit to Dave Haxtall for for seeing that it wasn't working kind of through that first period of this Penguins game and finally making that change. Yeah, and I think Dave Haxtell deserves some credit, but I'm going to actually kind of pass credit on a little bit further here because I did ask Dave Haxtell about kind of the the D pairs being consistent, at least to start games, right? Uh, for instance, the start of the season. And, you know, he gave me, I think, a pretty good answer about uh, you know, that being beneficial, obviously, as far as building chemistry. But one thing he did mention was that he's kind of given Jay Leach 
free reign mid game to switch up some of the D pairings and switch some things up and pointed out that, yeah, we, we have been doing that situationally. Uh, and I think we saw another instance of that last night uh, where, uh, you know, Dave Haxtell, he's got to kind of generally coach the whole game. And this is what you want to see an assistant coach doing Jay Leach. I mean, we've heard great things about him since the very start, you know, with Seattle, he very good uh, coach of the defense, the players love him. And I think he's able to kind of gauge this mid game, be like, okay, look, something isn't working here. And, I think it was probably him who made that change uh, to the D pairs. And uh, it came out really beneficial. Uh, you know, when, when you just see that Alexiak does not have it going tonight, let's change something up. Uh, and it, it had a really good result in that game. Yeah, it, it did. And it was, it was something that, that worked. And I want to talk about, about what they actually did there because, you know, Vince Dunn kind of also had struggles to start the season, but I felt like has really kind of turned things around and put up some really solid games these last couple, this last week or so. So I like the leaving of the Dunn-Larson pair alone. You, you leave your top pairing alone. They're actually doing pretty good, 60.1% when it comes to the expected goals and driving possession. So things are, things are pretty solid there. You don't totally need to touch it. Um, it's it I know it must have been hard to break up Susie Borgen on you know for multiple reasons mm -hmm. as, as, <laughs> as uh but the bottom line was the the Alexiak Schultz pairing needed to be broken up things needed to change there and what we saw was Alexiak going down to play with Will Borgen and um Carson Susie coming up onto the second pairing to play with Justin Schultz and I felt like they both just played better it's clear that Schultz and Susie need to need more time together to, to to find their chemistry know where each other likes to be especially when it comes to like breaking out of the kraken's defensive zone i felt like that was a little messy last night but it, it it's something that will get better with time um but what i i did like what i was seeing from the alexiak borgen thing and you know we talked about this on post game live um you have just Will Borgen, who's full of gumption and willing to just go out there and hit anybody and, and try to make a play and play super aggressive, pressure shooters, all of that great stuff. And then, you know, I'll let you talk about kind of what Alexiak can bring and what he was bringing last night post-change, but it, it complements that play really well. Yeah, it does. And like you mentioned, Borgen out there, you know, trying to make all the plays and so strong too. And Alexiak, a little bit more conservative, a little bit more reserved, but he's got that reach. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that really helped, you know, kind of focusing on getting in the passing lanes, being in the right spots, and especially after making a big mistake like that, that directly leads to a Penguins goal, just trying to settle down and focus on the fundamentals of his game. Uh, while Borgen goes out and does his thing, I think it worked really well uh, as a deep pair. Exactly. So I'm I'm curious to see if we see these D pairs on Tuesday um, or if this was just kind of to get through the Penguins game. It's going to be interesting. It will be interesting to see, you know, practices and stuff, what what goes on. Um, I do know if, if you know, if you are on Money Puck, those those two pairings are on there just because guys have been like on the ice with each other. But it's very, very limited minutes. I know like the numbers for these lines are atrocious, but Without the sec the two last periods of, of that Penguins game, you're talking about situations where guys are just trying to like make changes on the fly. Who knows what's going on in those situations? I'm not mm -hmm. willing to read too much into what the what the numbers are saying for them quite yet. But it it you know the fact that you did have a Susie Borgen pairing above sixty percent, Dunn Larson pairing above sixty percent when it comes to driving expected goals. Yes, we talked about the the limitations of that. It it does show that you know. Those the the one mistake that those that those players would make in a game, how costly that was because they were playing so well otherwise. But every game, if you know, if you have each of those pairings make one mistake each, and all three of those mistakes mistakes lead to a goal, that's how you you find yourself in these close tough games. And that's kind of what we were seeing through the Chicago type games or the Vancouver game where the Kraken have the offense to keep up to a point. But there's a limit for every offense, and um, I think both of those were five four losses. You know, mm -hmm. if you just if you just you know two of those pairings change and make better decisions, those games don't come anywhere close to being losses for this team. So um, interesting to see what 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 continues there. Shifting over to talk about the offensive lines now. 
RJ. Because yesterday, mm-hmm. before this Penguins game, I had tweeted, because Mari Puck had sent out some things, and I had quote-tweeted them, and one of them was uh, forward lines throughout the NHL sorted by expected goals percentage, and at 5th in the NHL, you had the schwartz Beneers eberly line, and at 7th in the NHL, you had the burakovsky wenberg bjorkstrand line. And that felt very much in line with what I was seeing, especially when you look at the numbers there um, that they had, which was that, you know, the Burakovsky, Bjorkstrand, Wenberg line was generating a lot more chances. And really what was driving things for the Beneers line was the limitation of chances going the other way. And uh, we already kind of touched on that, but I thought that that was, it it, it was a little surprising at first, but putting just a tiny bit of thought into it, it made a lot of sense. Right. And the eye test kind of backs that as far as what we've seen. I mean, it we haven't really looked at the rest of the NHL as closely as we have the Kraken, obviously, because we right. cover the Kraken. Um, but to see where they rank, it, it, I guess, wasn't all that surprising when you really think about it. Um, and, and it shows how they've really hit on these two forward lines that are kind of carrying things, you know, as far as their top six uh, in a way that I don't think they ever really did last season, even when some of the, some of their lines were, were going and firing on all cylinders. It was never at a kind of top of the league type thing, as far as just keeping possession and, and generating offense. Yeah, exactly. So really, really happy with what we've seen um, from them. I, I do believe they took a hit. We were talking kind of right before we, Played. They're not fifth and seventh anymore after this Penguins game, which again shows another kind of limitation to doing this. Small sample sizes, right? One yep. game right now make can have a drastic swing one direction or the other. As the season continues, though, that won't be the case. Um, but still, very very good. It's not like they you know were like somehow fell the negative territory or anything. Um, as I'm as I'm looking because I wanted to see like the third line: McCann, Gord, Coolman together 86.7%. Now, only 24 minutes of ice time, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but I mean that matches up with what we were seeing from them. I mean really if you don't have the 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 Coolman PK misplay that you talked about earlier, I I don't think Coolman gets scratched against the Penguins because he was playing really well. Yeah, no, he had had a really good few games going up to that and yeah, made a kind of a key mistake in that game. And, you know, maybe as a coach, you want to send a message. And I, I don't necessarily have an issue with it mm-hmm. uh, because also you can just plug Brandon Tanev onto that line. And uh, I mean, <laughs> you know what Brandon Tanev brings, uh, you know, in in place of Kuhlman, I think they, they play a similar style of game. I, you know, I'd say Tanev is actually the better player there. Um, I'm looking for the, uh, if, if we have, uh, numbers have, on McCann, yes. Gord, Tanev. Yes, it's actually, because um, I have it limited by like 20 minutes of ice time, there's actually almost okay. 33 minutes of them together, and it's the worst performing crack in offensive line. Interesting. 48.1%. Huh. So it's almost double production from McCann, Gord, Kuhlman as from McCann, Gord, Tanev, which is interesting. <laughs> interesting. I will. I mean, we we know the chemistry between Yanni Gord and Carson Kuhlman. I mean, they can yes. just kind of read the way that each other plays really well. Uh, so I, I guess I'm not super surprised by that. But but still, yeah, it's uh, it's good to know. Yeah, and then it's hard to get a read on the fourth lines because you have to drop that you know minimum ice time kind of sorter <laughs> down to just about nothing to try to get some of these lines in there. Tanev, Wright, Donato only played 16 minutes together, so it's hard to say, you know, read anything into that. Um, But like I said, night in, night out, you can just watch whatever grouping they have down as their fourth line. That line plays well. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. They play well, and um, I mean, we're seeing it in the actual goal results too. In case we needed any, you know, confirmation, you know, that because it's tough with such a limited sample size on the advanced stats. But um, if you can get your fourth line contributing, you know, three goals like they did in the Sabers game, and then uh, you know a big goal uh, another game later in the Penguins game, I mean, those are the kind of results. Whatever the underlying numbers in a small sample size, if you can get that positive actual goal differential. That's a win. Exactly. So I think the Kraken are well on their way. It's all just about limiting mistakes. Most of those mistakes have been in the defensive zone. I think, um, you know, Martin Jones put together two really, really solid games this week. I think that's going to be something we continue to see from him. 
And um, yeah, I, I just think this team is they're, they're on a good trajectory. All that's left for them now is to be able to string good games back to back, RJ. I know that is that is uh, what eludes them at the moment. Can, can... Uh, and if they can just break through, I said this on post game last night, if they can just break through and get that second win in a row, I could see the wins just starting to pile up. Um, there, there just seems to be kind of that barrier there. Uh, maybe it's a mental barrier as much as it is, you know, the team in front of them, but um, just have to figure that one out. But I like the overall trajectory, as you said. Yeah, I just want to see this team spend like a week above 500, just so we know that we're not all allergic to it. Like we're not all going to bust out in hives <laughs> because the team's above 500 for any significant length of time. Uh, that's that's what I want uh, <laughs> just after last season and everything and 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 um their, their kind of inability to just quite get there this this season. I think that would be a lot of fun. But we talked about, um, during that last segment, uh, the fourth line and the limited minutes, all the different combinations that the Kraken have had on it have been. And in part of that is because of Shane Wright not being in the lineup consistently, right? Uh, played in, I believe it's five games. He's got that one point, that one almost goal. Uh, in those five games, averaging six minutes and 50 seconds in those games played. And um, it's it's been three games in a row now. He's been out of the lineup. The last couple of days, we, we've seen some more uh, noise or talk about that. You get an article uh, for the Kraken's website from Allison Lucan, where she talks with Shane's family and she talks with Ron Francis. So we get some kind of insights there. And then also last night, you have Jeff Merrick talking to a, a fairly large audience um, that might not be totally paying close attention to the Kraken about it and, you know, saying that all sides are frustrated by the situation with Shane Wright. And so, um, I, I guess RJ, do you want to, you want to kind of touch on that first and then we can kind of dig into the many layers that this situation has? Sure. Um, so this has been, you know, kind of an ongoing story, uh, with the Kraken over, over the past week, uh, they had a three game homestand. And uh, Shane Wright was a healthy scratch for all three games. Uh, and and one thing that was also pointed out, and, you know, this doesn't really matter on the hockey side of it, but his grandparents came up to visit uh, and they were here for the three game homestand. I, I got to meet them. They're very, very nice people, adorable couple. Um, and they didn't really get to see him play. Uh, so that was another issue there. And, you know, with the Jeff Merrick report, um, yeah, that uh, reporting that basically everybody involved seems to be frustrated. Um, I, I kind of wanted you to make this point because you made it so well <laughs> before we we're talking. But uh, I mean, what, what's your take on on that Merrick report? Well, that that of course there's frustration, right? Like, how could there not be? You've got on on the team side of things, you have this player you've drafted that you know is going to be a big part of your future plans, and he's not seeing the ice right now. He, he's not getting games in. Um, kind of the worst thing we know for for any player developing is to just kind of sit in the press box. And Ron Francis talks about that in the Allison Lucan article. So of course the team is frustrated because they're not getting what they want out of the player that you know there's there's expectation around. And then on the player side, it also you're not playing. Show me a player who isn't frustrated when they're not playing, right? Show me the player who's happy to be a healthy scratch. So I felt like the whole thing was kind of just built out of. Uh, some obvious stuff. I, I The thing I kept coming around to was you don't need to be in the building and you don't need to have an inside source to come to the conclusion that both sides would be frustrated when it comes to this situation. So I feel like it was more so Jeff Merrick kind of just kind of needing to have a talking point as they were talking about all the rookies and the as as many of them have kind of hit the eight game mark and and the decisions whether or not to send them all down and then you have to touch on the Shane Wright situation I feel like it's just kind of like an easy it's an easy out from a media standpoint as as a group that doesn't have somebody here covering the Shane Wright situation full time right they don't know all of the ins and outs and we'll talk about how much of the ins and outs we actually know covering them all the time um but it just it was just one of those things where it was like yeah of course there's frustration why why wouldn't there be show me this situation anywhere and, and tell me that there isn't frustration from either party yeah no it makes sense to me <laughs> so um all right so we in the as we get into the more of the allison lucan article you get ron francis uh at, at you know at one point talking about how um, you want to see him playing more like 10 to 11, uh, 10 to 12 minutes rather than the kind of six minutes. Like I said, he's averaging 650 of ice time. Obviously, you know, 
I, I talked about this way back when he was drafted. I said kind of if you're going to keep him up and most of the season he's going to be your fourth line center, it's probably not best for his development just because of the limited situational use, the limited minutes he's going to get. You're probably better off having him go back to major junior just to get more minutes in just because at, at that young age, and especially considering he missed that full year in the OHL due to COVID, just getting game reps is what's going to be best for this kid. And I've, I've changed, I've come off of that a little bit just because I feel like, you know, is him beating up on, on lesser skilled players in the CHL um, necessarily the best thing for his overall development? Will that actually help him make a, make an adjustment to the NHL game next season easier? Will it make it easier? I don't know. Um, you get Ron Francis kind of musing and asking the question of, and uh, you know, if Shane Wright's in a Memorial Cup kind of run situation in the CHL, is that maybe a better situation uh, going on? And and that's, again, something I, I talked about the first night he was scratched. The idea popped into my mind of, well, maybe they just don't want him going to Kingston. Like, maybe they just want him in a different situation. Maybe, maybe send him over to Hamilton, play with Ryan Winterton, your other prospect, right? They had a Memorial Cup run last year with Winterton um, and Mason McTavish. Maybe you have Shane Wright go and kind of do that fill the Mason McTavish void in a Hamilton kind of, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that kind of situation, RJ and um, that kind of Ron Francis quote from the article? Yeah. I mean, it made me kind of reconsider what he had said earlier about the plan is for Shane Wright to stay the whole year. I, I think they might be second guessing that a little bit. Uh, the fact that he kind of pointed to that type of scenario, one that we've already been thinking about a little bit uh, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And the reason it makes a lot of sense is because I think all parties involved, Merrick mentioned the, the obvious frustration, I think they found themselves in kind of an impossible situation and one where each person's interests don't necessarily align with each other's. And that's what's creating this difficult situation. You have the different stakeholders in this. You've got Ron Francis, who kind of the long-term view of the, of the organization is his priority and has to be. You've got Shane Wright, who, you know, his, his development and obviously just wanting to get into games is a priority. And then you've got Dave Haxtell, who at the end of the day is just trying to put together the best lineup that he believes gives the team the best chance to win. And that's what Haxtell is doing. You know, he's kind of has the final say as far as who plays in any given night. And that's his job is to put the lineup together that he feels gives the team a best chance to win. And I think that you and I might even agree that the lineups he's putting on the ice are the lineups that are giving the crack and the best chance to win night in, night out, right? Yeah, it's hard to deny like how how well Morgan Geeky is playing, right? As he's gotten two big time goals over the course of this past week. Um, we just spent, I mean, we've spent most of this podcast prior to now talking about how good the depth of the Kraken has been playing, how they're outclassing their opponents in the bottom six. So it it is. It's I totally understand from a coaching standpoint as somebody who coming off the season you had last year you want to be able to be in that playoff hunt even if you don't quite get there you at least want to be in that conversation for as long as possible it makes all the sense in the world then to maybe not you know try to force a bunch of minutes to your 18 year old rookie when you know that these other players are working and it's all it's all gelling and you're winning hockey games you're beating teams like the Pittsburgh Penguins you know what I mean it's really hard right but when you look at the bigger picture you have to balance that against yes. Shane Wright's long-term development. And you could make a good argument that Shane Wright's long-term development actually means more to this organization than wins right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's tough because Dave Haxtell can't really take that into consideration given what his job is. The GM can take that into consideration. And I suppose you could have the GM come in and step in and be like, okay, yeah, I, I know this might lead to less wins now, but the long-term view is more important. You kind of have to you have to play this player. But I think that's a really bad situation. I don't think you ever want that in an organization, really, where you have the GM stepping in and telling the coach who he can and can't play. Um, so it, it just kind of creates this impossible situation for everyone involved. And then on top of it, you've got the junior team not being the ideal destination for him. And it feels like everyone's kind of stuck. 
yeah it and that's the perfect word is stuck as far as the other you, you say impossible situation i say no win situation because like if you're dave haxtall in this situation and and the gm is saying hey play this guy play this guy play this guy but at the same time you're looking around and you know you and i know right we're doing these post-game lives after every single kraken game all through last season we were hearing it through any time the kraken struggle through this season the first thing everyone is saying is you know they're, at the very least, they're questioning Dave Haxtall, if not, it's not outright saying he needs to be fired, right? And so if you're Dave Haxtall and you're saying, came in with a certain level of expectation last year, didn't really meet those expectations through that full season, this year still remains to be seen. I understand the idea of, you know, in a way he is coaching for his job. His job is performance results driven as everybody's in sports is. And, and so he's in this no-win situation unless you have just absolute assurances from ownership from management from everybody that hey no matter what happens this year as long as we're playing right and we develop him your job is safe which i don't know that they would give him because it seems kind of nuts to give that to any coach uh, if you're in that situation then you can't take that as a guarantee you have to do what is best for the club day to day which has been what he's doing. And if you're Ron Francis, it's a no-win situation because if you truly feel that sending him back to the OHL is not what's best for him, you're worried about him forming bad habits or not being able to get, you know, play against tough enough competition to really kind of take that next step, whatever it is that you're worried about. But at the same time, your understanding of the fact that, hey, I can't force him into the lineup here, right? Like I can't just take control of this team become you know what i mean and and so it's a no-win situation for him and then yes poor shane wright really is the one guy he has no say in anything like he's he's the most powerless in this because he has no ability to just put himself in the lineup obviously he can work and we're seeing that he's working extremely hard after every single practice you're putting out video of him working one-on-one with the Kraken coaching staff skating until he basically just falls down because he's he's just wearing himself (laughs) out so much. He is putting in the work. He's doing absolutely everything he can possibly can to prove to this coaching staff that he deserves ice time. Um, But at the end of the day, I understand, I I, I see the situation from all sides and it is, it's a no win situation. Yeah. And I mean, he is putting in the work. I think that is really worth mentioning as someone yes. who kind of sees him out there. He's out there with the scratches after practice, but he's the last one off the ice too. It's not, you know, like he's just getting that extra work in with everybody. He is putting in that individual work with the coaches later, basically until he drops. I have seen that a couple times until he literally just falls down and cannot skate anymore. He's putting in that work, but due to factors outside his control, he hasn't been given a chance to prove himself. And I think that's something that's also worth worth mentioning too, that when you have, when you get into five games out of 10 and you're averaging less than seven minutes of ice time, that's that's not a fair opportunity to prove himself. And I, and I know mm. we've kind of, we haven't seen enough from him to say, look, he's a difference maker. He's somebody who kind of deserves to be in the lineup if you're just trying to win games. But I think for a player like that, you need at least... 10 to 12 minutes, like Ron Francis said, just to be to able to know, not just, you know, to prove to the coach and the GM, but for yourself to know if you can hang at this level. Um, and, and that's, I think, another difficult part of this situation. Even if you were to just find a good junior team for him and send him down, I think that's something that could be difficult for his confidence because he hasn't really had uh, that fair opportunity to to kind of fail at the NHL level and show that, you know, maybe you should be sent down if he gets, you know, 12 to 15 minutes or so for a few games and, and look, he's just maybe not the most effective player. Then you can send him back. And I, without any kind of hard feelings and he realizes mm-hmm. where he needs to improve. Uh, and, and he can kind of rationalize that too, as far as why he's being sent down and, and why he can't stick at the NHL level. But right now, again, I don't know what's going through his mind, but I think it would be easy to think, look, I just haven't been given a fair shake yet. I do belong here, but I just, I haven't had the chance to prove myself. Yeah, I a thousand percent agree. And it is, it's so stark when you look at, yeah, five games out of 10, 650 of ice time. I mean, that's like the dying days of the enforcer, what they were getting, right, RJ? Like, yeah, like that's the step below fourth minute, fourth line ice time. Right, because what we're seeing is, is game by game. This is what I want to see. I forget the actual number of time on ice. 
I want to see him actually take every shift that the fourth line takes because what we've seen through those five games is that he takes every other shift or sometimes every third shift. The fourth line goes out there. They're rotating a different center in playing with them. And that's just something that you can't do. Like he needs to be no. out there with his guys, building confidence, building chemistry with his line mates. Like that is the only way you're going to be able to get an accurate read on him. And so I don't know at this point, we can kind of transition into what we think it would take to get him in the lineup. I mean, for me, I, I, I kind of just got the feeling just because there's so much noise around it. And I mentioned this briefly on post game live last <laughs> night. Maybe we see him in the next game just, just because of that. Um, but I, I don't know, like, does it, is it going to take a, a losing streak to get him in there? It might, I, I think it might take a losing streak. I thought the loss against the Canucks would be enough to yeah. get him into the lineup. I, I know it's not a losing streak, but maybe that is what it'll take is multiple losses where you feel you have to shake something up. Um, honestly, at this point, I feel like it's just injuries. It might yeah. just take injuries and obviously you never want that to happen. Um, so I, I don't know what it's going to take at this point. If, if he didn't get in for this Penguins game and it's tough because Haxtell, you know, he's making this, I guess you could call it a bold decision not to put right in the lineup, given all the noise around everything. And I almost want to, you know, kind of give him some credit there for, for sticking to his guns because he, it's paying off. Like you look at the Penguins game, it was the most complete effort the team has had all season. And it was a game where, you know, I think he was very roundly criticized that morning for not putting Shane right in the lineup. And when you're getting those positive results, you know, in terms of a win and a convincing game, you know, I, I think as a coach, just to get to that position as a coach, you have to kind of be able to insulate yourself from that outside noise. And so I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah. And then I guess the the last thing to talk about, just because we've seen this pop up and I'm sure people ta are talking about it everywhere when they consider the situation is the idea of, you know, are you completely married to the idea of him having to play center? Do you move him to the wing because that gets it a little easier to, to get him in the lineup? We've seen, you know, Hackstall. I mean, we just talked about it earlier. Carson Kuhlman coming out for this Penguins game. Donato kind of subbing in there. Um, do, do we think that the ice time would be easier to come by if he's playing on the wing? Kind of less responsibilities. You don't have kind of that two-way responsibility in the same way that if he's playing center. Um, I mean, kind of your thoughts on that. I think the ice time would be a little bit easier to come by if no injuries happen. I still don't know no. how you're looking at like a, a Kuhlman. Maybe he gets in over a Ryan Donato on the fourth line. And, and, and even then maybe he, he doesn't get a ton of ice time. So I don't know that makes things a whole lot better really, but uh, it would be a little easier to come by. And I think maybe that's a solution here when you're talking about the alternatives of sending him back to junior or, you know, gosh, even it's like sending him to Europe, whatever, when right. you're talking about those alternatives, maybe moving him to wing seems like a, a less extreme option, but I still think it's something the team would prefer not to do. Right. And, and Europe is the only other option. And, and, you know, I, I could see an argument to be made for it because he'd be playing against men. He'd be playing against better competition night in, night out than he would probably in the OHL. Um, so it would be a good development thing. But it, it, I think the Kraken want him in-house. They want him around their NHL team. They want to get him used to the NHL lifestyle. That's the other big part of that Allison Lucan article is just, you know, the fact that this is a kid who's never lived on his own, had to live on his own before. He's 18, right? And he's never had to have, you know, be not in school right? Like, like you've, you've always had all these things. Think of where you're at at 18 years old. And now imagine being put in the situation that Shane writes in, there's a lot going on there. And then to just be like, Hey, would you consider moving to a different continent? You know, time zones, completely different, all that stuff. And you're just going to have to kind of figure it out in a country that doesn't speak the same language as you, you know what I mean? Like you don't speak their language yeah. all insane. in the middle of a hockey season too, right? right? Transferring from one team it, to another at any point in the middle of the season, it's yeah. just so much. I, I don't think that's a good idea. No, I don't think it can happen. Um, as far as him playing on the wing, the one thing I would be concerned about is if the whole idea is that, you know, he is, you're, you're, you're doing the long-term plan and the long-term plan says, Hey, at some point, this guy's going to be our number two center behind Matty Beniers. And that's going to be, you know, our pillars that we build around for the next decade plus. Um, I, do you, do you really want to, move him to wing if, if part of the reason you're not sending him back down to major junior is that you don't want him building bad habits or not being able to work on exactly what you want him working on then I don't see moving him to wing as being a solution just because 
it's a completely different game, right? It's going to have completely different responsibilities. Where he's supposed to be on the ice is going to be completely different. I don't think, you know, just because he's only 18 and no 18-year-old is nearly physically developed, I don't think that you can have him be like a winger who's going to be going and driving the net a bunch and, and all that kind of stuff or being super effective below the goal line on the forecheck just because, like I said, no 18-year-old is as fully developed as a 25-year-old. It's just not how bodies work. And so um, it's... It's a tough situation. I don't think wing's an option. Europe's obviously not an option. It sounds like for the Kraken, the the OHL isn't an option unless maybe something changes. And so we're just kind of left in this waiting game. And um, it's just an unfortunate situation all the way around. It is. And I think something we should also explain to while we're talking about this, because I've seen questions about this on, on social media and online. Uh, no, AHL Coachella Valley is yeah. not an option for Shane Wright. Um, there's an agreement between the NHL uh, and the CHL as far as junior teams. So if you're if you're under 20, you can't uh, play in the AHL. It's, you know, NHL, OHL or Europe basically are the different options. But I just wanted to clarify that because I know mm-hmm. there were a lot of people asking, well, why don't they just send him to Coachella Valley, which I do think would be the perfect development situation yes. for him thousand percent which you know we could have a whole other like hour-long discussion about that idea you know what i mean a whole separate podcast about the mm-hmm. idea of should you know first round picks or should there be like almost an exceptional player status situation something shane wright's very familiar with where you can apply to kind of get waived into the ahl now i can't imagine the canadian hockey league being okay with this in any shape or form because those are the kinds of guys that they want around right they're they're the they're best players essentially right if uh if you're talking about somebody that you want to be playing in the ahl so i don't think that that would happen soon but yes ideally that's what you would be doing especially with the fact that coachella valley is in seattle right now you're they're yes. using the same facilities you're playing in the same arena you're getting <laughs> that nhl lifestyle experience he could be living in the same you know apartment or wherever he's at you could he could still be having all of that um, until the team, you know, kind of gets set up down down in Coachella Valley in December. So, it, oh my gosh, it would just be so perfect. But of course, that's you know the perfect solution is the one solution the Kraken don't have available to them. Uh, it's just going to be life. Yep, it's just a tough situation. It's just going to be interesting to see um, when when he next gets in the lineup. And, and unfortunately, we're all just going to have to wait and see when that is. Yep. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep watching and uh, hopefully we see him at some point. Yep. And so on that um, kind of a downer note, I guess we'll end <laughs> the, this episode of the Deep Dive podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody, so much for, for joining us for this one. Big shout out once again to, to Queen Anne Beer Hall for sponsoring this as they do every week. Awesome. Kraken going to be coming up on a road trip. Great place to go watch those road games. Queen Anne Beer Hall. Go check it out there. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting situation with Shane Wright. But again, Kraken, best best week of the season so far for them. Beat up on a good Buffalo team. Beat up on a good Penguins team. Get some momentum rolling. Everybody's looking good. You got the all four lines moving. Got to see a defensive shakeup. We get to see how that looks. Martin Jones is looking lights out. Like There is lots of good stuff to be happy about uh, when it comes to this team. Yeah, absolutely. Way to place that nice top bun on the compliment sandwich of this podcast. Uh, looking good. Sprinkle some sesame seeds on it. Uh, yeah, no, I think you, you put us out on a good note there. Exactly. So before I get us into trouble or say anything else, going to go ahead and, and end it there. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. We will see you all next time.